rounds, organized, mobilized, yeah, baby, yeah. La Salam, welcome to Politics in Command. The following discussion is with author Jun Shu on his book, From Commune to Capitalist, How China's Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty, published by Monthly Review Press in 2018. The book dissects the transformation of agricultural communes to a decollectivized capitalist agriculture. The history of China's great reversal from a socialist society to a capitalist society is muddled with myths, lies, perpetuated by a Chinese intelligentsia, supported by the capitalist rotors and the current Chinese ruling class. The rewriting of this history states that the communes were inefficient and that decollectivization was a spontaneous phenomena. Jun Xu argues in his book, that although the communes were far from perfect, they were efficient and benefited the poor peasantry, as well as the urban proletariat. He also makes the important point that this rewriting of history was intentional to benefit the new capitalist class in China, that it was a top-down process to change the country, and it was coercive in nature. Now, before we begin the discussion, I'd like to acknowledge that despite all the support China gets today from so-called leftists around the world and wave the red flag, it has been concretely established that China began its capitalist path decades ago. A very basic timeline includes that before 1949, China was a feudal country. From 1949 to 1976, it was indeed on the socialist path. But after Mao's death in 1976, a huge struggle for power occurred between 76 and 78. But then after 1978, China officially began its capitalist path, overturning all the successes that socialist China had gained for the proletariat and peasantry, now giving power to the new bourgeoisie. Today, China has more billionaires than any other country, is full of exploited and oppressed people, and is intricately connected to the global capitalist system. To discuss this history through his book, let's talk with author and economist Jun Shu. Welcome to Politics in Command. Yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you and as well as, you know, uh, participating in this program. Yeah, I'm excited to um, dissect this book. Reading it was a, a delight um, we know that there is a lot of propaganda that uphold the capitalist, you know, rotors and its ideology, etc. So this was really great to read and dig through. And you really focus on some really core parts of history that I think are left out in the mainstream narrative. So just some introductory questions. Can you like briefly, you know, introduce your own book and more specifically, what were the goals in writing this book and who were you writing it for? Right. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I started thinking about the book when I was um, uh, doing graduate work. Um, uh, it was, um, I think it was a time when I very often run into uh, debates with, uh, uh, with scholars, uh, you know, uh, students, activists uh, everywhere, uh, but particularly in China, that, uh, you know, on the issue, how do we 
how do we look back, um, given that you know we all know that socialism is in the past, uh, but how do we look at that part of history? Um, if, if that part of history is indeed, as some people have claimed, uh, is premature, uh, was premature, was a mistake, uh, then, uh, you know, and eventually it was people's will that have uh, dismantled the socialist system, then, you know, the socialists nowadays, um, then we have to uh, acknowledge what went wrong in that period. And, and also we need to think about, we need to rethink what is the, uh, a better approach to uh, building uh, socialism. But uh, if the if the uh, if social the old socialist model um, on overall was doing okay, uh, but it, you know it was defeated rather than it was um, overthrown by the people, then we will get to a different kind of a conclusion. Uh, politically, that yeah, matters a lot. Um, it you know when you talk to people who are otherwise sympathetic to some ideas about socialism, uh, Marxism, then, you know, uh, it, it, in, the, in the environment where the, the, uh, the do- dominant ideology was based on anti-Mao, anti-socialist uh, uh, propaganda, then they would very easily raise the question, what about, you know, uh, the Cultural Revolution? What about the commune? Uh, what about all the poverty? Uh, that we have suffered in those days. Um, uh, poverty is not socialism, so as they say. And, uh, and so you have to have a, a, you know, a convincing response to that. I think that was my main motivation in starting working on this project. Uh, it's res- you know, answering my own questions as well as engaging in some of the uh, political struggles in China today. Yeah, and and in answering your own questions, I think you kind of said some of some of it in the preface of your book. You know, you said you discovered China's revolutionary history in college, and had weekly discussions with it with colleagues, kind of like what you just said. Um, and this was after the fact. While in high school, your experience in China, uh, you were taught that quote, the Maoist period was an unfortunate disaster and due to inefficient individual incentives under the collectives, people at that time were lazy, end quote. Can you talk about uh, what the PRC taught you in high school compared to the revolutionary Chinese history you discovered in college? Because I think this is so incredibly important. Um, Yeah. um, In fact, um, whatever I've learned in high school they got reinforced in college. Uh, it was after I came to the United States for graduate school when I, I, I you know, had a real rethinking about the history. Um, what I, you know, what everyone, of course, the, the, you know, the, the textbook that people learn, um, they study at school, they are changing uh, every, few, every few years. So the, the, the kind of things that I learned um, back in the day is still better than the, the stuff that people learn today. So it's keep uh, <laughs> uh, getting worse. Um, but those stuff that we learned back in the day was that um, uh, if you look at the history, the modern history of China, 
um, the, in the, the, the policies of the Communist Party or most primarily about uh, Chairman Mao is that he was mostly right before uh, 1949. And be between 1949 and 1966, when he started the Cultural Revolution, he was 70% correct and 30% wrong. Uh, and after, anything after that was predominantly just wrong. Um, so that was the, uh, the mainstream evaluation you would get from the, the textbooks. And you know, one of the most convincing examples that all the students, including me, found from the book was the illustration of how uh, simply you know, revising the institutions uh, in the countryside could have solved the problem of poverty. You know, it's such a, um, this is, you know, to some extent, we, we, we are all learning um, the basic Marxist uh, philosophical principles. Um, you know, we, we don't, you know, we were taught that um, it is the, <laughs> the uh, uh, it's the material conditions. Yeah, it's the being that would decide your consciousness. Um, the ideas, um, and and you know the 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 very um, end of the uh, socialist institutions were considered to be a, a triumph of materialism um, because you cannot yeah you have all the great ideas in the commune you want to achieve equality uh, but in the end you just achieve poverty for all um, uh, and. You, they present it all the the figures, all the stories uh, that how by getting rid of the commune, uh, uh, you are removing the the hurdles, the obstacles um, in the in the process of developing productive forces, uh, which would you know which is progressive, it's revolutionary, uh, and that is how the textbooks um, justified. The, this whole process, which to many of us, that was very uh, persuasive. Um, you know, it was the textbook, you know, it's somehow fitting well with this, uh, the Marxian framework that we have learned. Um, and uh, we never doubt about it. Um, um, so that became the ultimate political correctness in the PRC. Until today, um, every national leader would have to uh, pay some kind of tribute to the to the rural reform. Uh, that was the beginning. That was the starting point of the uh, the new journey in the post Mao era. Um, and you know, any rethinking would not be would not be encouraged. Let's say you know, it's, I mean, it's hard to, for example, get anything like that published in in China. Um, um, so yeah, that's what you 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 learned back in the day. And nowadays, it's even I think it's even worse um, because when we learned the the standard textbook uh, in the nineties, um, it still contains a lot of Marxism in it. Um, it it emphasizes class struggle. Uh, this was you know for the Chinese history. Uh, it was for the, the, the global history that we have learned. Uh, and the Marxism was embedded in virtually every subject of uh, social sciences. Uh, we learned 
basically the the division of uh, the north and south from geography class. Um, we we learned um, you know um, this uh, the exploitation from the po political class, and then uh, you get when you get to history class where there's you see lots of very rich, basically Marxian historical uh, stuff, uh, you know, uh, from the Renaissance period until the contemporary period. So you do get a very uh, clear guideline on how, how do you look at history from a Marxist perspective. Then, um, although this perspective that I mentioned, it, it, it tried to justify the, uh, the post-Mao reform uh, in the name of Marxism, um, it did it rather awkwardly. Uh, it was not a perfect job. I mean, to, maybe to high school students, it was okay. Uh, but uh, when you look back, I mean, there, is many, there are many loopholes. Um, there is some incompatibility between Marxism and the actual, you know, what's going on in the real world. Uh, and that, I think that was why, at least partly why, uh, many scholars and, you know, the officials uh, have been saying that we need to reform the education system. Uh, that basically means we need to get rid of the, you know, outdated <laughs> Marxist stuff. Um, as one of the historians, uh, he said, um, there's just too much emphasis on class struggle in the current textbook. And what we need to focus, I mean, that, that emphasis on class struggle prepares militancy among people. You know, because you look at history from a very militant perspective, you know, it's one class taking over the other. There's no, you know, compromise. Uh, and, and he said, but look at, you know, what other people in other countries are learning. They're learning civilization. It's peaceful. It's progress. It's, it's collaboration. It's, you know, all the great stuff. And we need to transition from the old Mao type, you know, uh, violence to the modern type of civilizational history. And that's what they did, actually. If you look at the contemporary uh, uh, high school, middle school textbooks, it's completely restructured in terms of civilization. Um, it's, you know, uh, medieval civilization, then you move on to the other civilization. So it's, it's it, the focus is, it's, you know, move more to the, the mainstream history. Um, uh, very little, um, you know, uh, the traditional Marxian focus there. I mean, it's not done. The project of getting rid of Marxism is an ongoing thing. And, and because uh, pretty much uh, the entire social science in, in modern China has been built uh, with Marxism. Uh, so, you know, it's everywhere. Um, and it, it takes, I, I assume it will take a long time for them to eventually really get rid of everything, but it's hard to do so. And they would, you know, uh, that would encounter other problems. For example, if you completely get rid of class struggle, get rid of the legitimacy of the revolution, then what is the legitimacy of the communist party itself? Uh, how do you defend yourself? Well, why did you have a revolution anyway? I mean, did you kill the landlords or not? Did you get rid of them? Uh, and if you, Today, you argue that, you know, we shouldn't do anything like that. Now, why did you do it 70 years ago? Those became uh, uh, very, you know, challenging questions. And, and, and at, to some point, I mean, they, they you know, 
the ruling class, I mean, they're, they're scholars, wouldn't want to go that far. So the, it's a constant thing, you know, um, uh, um, they definitely hated the, the existence of Marxism, uh, but they, yet they couldn't quite get rid of them. Um, the students, when they learn it, um, this is something that I noticed was very different from many other countries. Then the students, uh, like like myself, when you learn this all the stuff like Marxism and not, you, you're not. I mean, I was very you know I was very convinced by Marxism uh, when I when I learned it, even though it was a you know vulgarized version, but it contains a lot of truth, and I was uh, so I was very impressed. There are students who you know just didn't get into those. And, but they still, you know, uh, was exposed to, to those ideas. And when they went into history, into society, when they were really abused by their bosses, they would get it. Oh, ah, that's what this, the textbooks was about. That's what class struggle is. I understand what exploitation is. I mean, I memorized, I, I did it for the test. Uh, so it was the, a very different level of political consciousness that you could find among the um, among the Chinese uh, um, workers or Chinese younger generation, that they you know they you know uh, uh, willingly or unwillingly, they got a lot of training with Marxism, um, and the real the reality in the society also trained them uh, um, you know continuously. So they would um, some of them would make a connection, and once they make a connection, they would tend to be more radicalized than before. And that's basically, you know, the uh, origin of the, the Chinese uh, left in the post-Mao era. That's so interesting to me. And also, you know, now that you now live in the U.S., like, I wonder what your thoughts are where, you know, my understanding is students who graduate from high school in this country have almost zero class consciousness. Um, and And so... I don't know. What what are your thoughts now that you, you know, I'm sure you're you're teaching students that are, you know, graduating high school and going into college. What are your thoughts now that you have been in the US for a little bit? I I have enjoyed teaching the, you know, the students here. Um, um yes, not, you know, uh, you know, uh, many students were not um uh, were not equipped with the kind of uh, uh, political training uh, that that they, they need, uh, but I think they have some very um, you know even on a relatively primitive level they have some idea of justice um, because you do see injustice you know everywhere you know when I was teaching at Howard uh, the the African American students or the, anyone. Uh, of the Af- African diaspora, they, they, you know, they can tell you all kinds of stories about the injustice they, they face every day. Um, and now I'm teaching in the City University of New York in Zhangzhou. And, uh, that, you know, here are the students, many of them are working class background, and uh, they have uh, some basic consciousness. You know, we are not, I mean, so like we are not the 1% at least. Um, so that is very helpful. Although, um, uh, you know, sometimes I would, I would think that if they, if they had been exposed to more, you know, radical um, theories, ideas, 
uh, when they were, you know, when they were in, in the public school, uh, it would be even better. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it, I think that it is, it is a big change. Uh, it is a big difference. Um, in the United States, uh, we noticed that, you know, the, uh, it's very common for, um, you know, the, the shared, uh, political correctness is, is, you know, sometimes it's, it's identity politics. Um, you're, you know, basically, you know, there are certain, certain categories, criterions you would, you would, you know, you, you were very familiar with. Um, and uh, he, that is not the case in, in, in China among the Chinese uh, leftists. I mean, that there, it was because of the, you know, this um, Marxism, training education in school um they are the you know the, the the idea all the all the narratives were around class rather than other identities so they, they do see that big difference yeah that's an interesting uh comparison um and yeah i know i did watch your interview on the real news network from a few years ago uh, where there was Marxist students uh, rallying, protesting, I believe. And, you know, you were on to talk and give your perspective about it. And people were like, you know, why, what's going on here? It, what's go- Why is the CPC um, cracking down on students that are promoting Marxism? While at the same time, Xi Jinping is also saying that we need to study Marxism. And I thought that, you know, for anyone listening, check that out on YouTube um type in junshu you know real news network and you can check that out do you want to can you comment on that uh that that event uh just briefly yeah sure um um the basically the 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 uh the protest that you mentioned um as well as the subsequent uh cracking down uh has it was one of the most significant events uh uh, among the the Chinese left uh, activists, especially for the younger generation, um, because something like this has, I think, has not happened in quite a long time. Um, uh, and this and yet, happened probably in what two thousand eighteen, I think. Yes, okay. uh, around that time, I think it was two thousand. Yeah, two thousand eighteen. Uh, two thousand. Yes. Yes, 2018 or 19, I think. Yeah, in the summer. Um, um, yeah, in the COVID, I already lost count of, of years. You know, I think about, you know, the last day I, 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 uh, I was still free. <laughs> that was last year. I feel like last month, uh, you know, it's, it's lost the, the very idea of time. We're um, all feeling it. <laughs> um, the, but, you know, the, I think the, the students, when they um, talk about Marx, when they use Marx, I mean, all, they try to teach other people about Marx or Marxism. Um, they had, you know, they were looking at the more micro level uh, labor capital conflicts. And, uh, you know, they were trying to build some kind of uh, um, uh, a, a progressive labor movement from there, some kind of a coalition between students and workers. Um, and I would say, you know, something they have 
learned uh, in the history of the Communist Party itself, um, and also I would say from other student movements in other countries like South Korea in the 1970s. Um, and so they did get inspiration from, from there. Um, the, on, the, on the central like, leadership level, um, the, um, the leader, like the president, when he talked about we need to study Marxism, um, it was a matter of the whole uh, existence of the Communist Party that that is at this at sick uh, because there are m- many um, high-level officials of it clearly not interested in Marxism, not interested in socialism. I mean, it was to them this is, you know, this is a uh, this is a, a just a, a straight jacket. They they want to just take it away um, as soon as possible or when they see fit. Um, and the president. Um, Obviously, he and in the you know the the force that he represents in the leadership that be, they believe that you cannot just get rid of this straight jacket. You have to keep it on uh, for whatever reason. Um, so they obviously they had a different um, motivation from the students who you know focus on class struggle. Um, and on the other hand, you know leadership. They look at that as a device, uh, a, a proof of legitimacy. So it's it's quite, they're, yeah, yeah, they they're quite disconnected from each other. Yeah. So you know now, and also now that you're in the U.S., I, I'm sure you've seen, and, and I hope you do, that a lot of the conversation from leftists in the U.S. is that China is still socialist today. Um, I'm, I'm wondering. Have you encountered that narrative a lot here? And if so, what what's your thoughts on that? Like, why do you think people still believe that China is socialist today? Right. Yes, I I do. Um, um, I do remember many conversations with um, uh, not just in the United States. I also had similar conversation with um, friends, comrades in in China. Who had similar views? Um, you know, uh, if you if someone um, held the view that China is socialist today, then the struggle that socialists need to have uh, is the old uh, struggle under the in the Mao era. You know, it's a struggle against the revisionist the revisionism. Um, then naturally. You would, you know, there would there would be two factions. You know, there's two lines in the party. Uh, one one faction may be supporting the real socialism, and the other party want to move away t- into revisionism. And it, you know, for, if, if someone following following that line would, uh, you know, would very, I think would very often, even consciously or unconsciously, uh, would. Um, Support um, some faction within the the ruling class, um, the party, some of the elites. Um, those that is something that um, um, in practice, though it 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 has not mattered that much <laughs> uh, because uh, you know it's 
the the other faction, <laughs> the you know the sometimes you know sometimes like in here, uh, people talk about the the Democrats or Republicans and say you know well at least there is some progressive in the Democrats and within the Democrats there is the Democratic Socialists of you know that's they are better right I mean so sometimes it's like we support this faction and and you know uh, they're gonna bring in China it's like bring back socialism. And in the theory, it's like we're gonna bring socialism, and 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 you know, n- not even once that hope is <laughs> fulfilled. I mean, it's uh, uh, <laughs> I think the reality speaks for itself. Uh, but in China, um, the uh, this faction, uh, you know, this this tendency of thinking uh, about uh, you know, there's is still socialist. There are two factions struggling with each other. I think that's growing weaker and weaker today. Um, uh, back in the day, uh, say 20 years ago, it was very common to hear that, especially among the older generation, um, older uh, party members. You know, many of them went through the revolution. They had a deep uh, connection with the history, with the party, and they, they, I think they, they found it difficult to just say, uh, you know, this is capitalist. Uh, they believe that, you know, we are still in the party. Uh, we are still, we can still make changes, right? We can make uh, proposals and, you know, somehow if we persuade the central leadership, they're going to change. Um, you know, but they, it's it's like we're going back to the utopian socialist era when you 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 think you can persuade the you know the elites they're gonna adopt a better social model, um, uh, but as time you know when as as you know the, there as it's clear that China is increasingly you know uh, um, uh, integrated into the global capitalism um, when so many people. Uh, are being exploited, uh, work under capitalism. I mean, that, you know, that view that we're still in socialism, we just need some major policy change, that is becoming, uh, you know, less popular than before because it's, it's just not convincing because we're not, we're never once, you know, moving back to socialism. Um, it's clear who is in power, who is in control. And it's clear that, the people who are in control have no interest of, you know, going, if you are going back, I mean, they just, so it's, um, um, and many of them, I think, you know, it's um, uh, took them some time to realize that um, uh, because some of the major um, social changes towards capitalism took place in the 1990s. Um, such as a massive unemployment uh, among the former uh, uh, state-owned enterprise workers. Um, millions of them lost jobs. And people thought, okay, maybe before the 1990s, you know, if we somehow go back to the 1980s, uh, it, it seems to be a somewhat a golden age in the post-Mao era where you know, the politics in general was, was, um, was quite liberal. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's, there was no real left, uh, in, in China at the time. Um, every, you know, social class, uh, to different degree, they were, 
they were they wanted to have kind of a Western kind of society, um, and and the uh, people still had their jobs, uh, welfare was still there. There was some inequality, but not much. Um, I, I think the people, some people, still had the fantasy that we can somehow go back to the 1980s. They, and and but over time, some of them would realize that the 1980s was a transitory phase. Um, you know the, the 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 big change. You know, ever since Mao died, ever since the you know uh, the the central leadership have had uh, denunciated Mao, have adopted a different model. That is already the beginning. You know, it's just a matter of time when you see uh, the full development of capitalism in in China. Um, so so I think that again, it's the reality of capitalism um, that is. Uh, gradually teaching uh, the working people, but uh, but the, it's different from let's say uh, cases in other former socialist countries like like Russia, uh, Ukraine, where you see the rise of uh, sometimes you know very ultra right wing political forces. Um, the, the 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 bourgeoisie when they when they were able to take over when they take over from these former socialist countries. They use all means possible to to you know to destroy the the idea of socialism. They created all kinds of myths, all kinds of you know lies about socialism, and they you know and those stuff they they were effective. Um, uh, it's you know it became difficult in those places to organize uh, for uh, for the new socialist forces. Um, that what make again make China a little different was that because there is no sudden change in the leadership, uh, there is continuity in the ideology, in the education, in a lot of things. So, you know, people, uh, you know, they they got to see um, the the full display of capitalism while they are still getting the training, the education, ideas. From the socialist period, and that uh, 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 was effective because you know you can fold working class once, let's say in 1989-1990, you can fold them once. Can you fold them twice? I doubt so. Not in China, at least. I mean, they have been folded once, and um, you know today, if you are still going to reproduce the kind of massive unemployment, you know that they have did uh, done in the 1990s, I don't think they have the political. A courage to do it because it's it's gonna be suicide. Yeah, that's interesting to see what's going on within China, and and I love how you compared it to. Um, I feel like definitely like social uh, uh, Democrats, where they're like, we can if we get enough AOCs and Bernie <laughs> Sanders, we could reach socialism in the U.S. in the belly of the beast. Um, and so, yeah, I could very much like see how that is playing out. Um, cause we have it, a, a lot of that here in the U S but, you know, now, but you explained basically how f- folks inside of China are, are debating this, but now that you're in the U S I'm still interested how, if you have any thoughts on like, I mean, I see a lot of, I call them pseudo-Marxists, pseudo-communists, um, revisionists here in the U.S. that really are touting 
and defending China as, as like this leading vanguard of the, of the world, right? Like they are still on a socialist path. Like, so why do you think people outside of China, specifically in U S still believe that China is socialist today? Right. I think I, um, um, uh, I've talked to, um, many people along that line. I, uh, you know, I respect many of them. Uh, I don't, you know, it's, um, in, when you look at uh, when you look at uh, China from a distance, uh, there are many micro level uh, problems, struggles uh, that you would tend to overlook, which is which is fine for the purpose of the struggle in the U.S. Uh, I think you know in, in China we cannot overlook that those struggles, because, you know, that matters a lot to, to us. Um, uh, but in the U.S., I will see, I'll say many, you know, many people when they, um, um, the main education, the purpose of that was trying to, um, um, you know, um, illustrate, uh, you know, some uh, different possibilities, some, or fight against the anti-China uh, propaganda, uh, I, I do see, you know, they, they can um, not romanticize, but they, they tend to pro- present a more positive evaluation of, of China. And indeed, I will say, you know, it's, uh, the, the China, it is ruled by the, the Communist Party. I mean, you can say it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, and obvious you can take away the communism part, but it's, it's, it's still it's burdened, I think it's burdened by historical legacy. Uh, it cannot yet do as it just wants, uh, like anyone else. It, 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 you know, uh, for years it has, you know, uh, it has argued that, you know, we, we are part of global south, we need to help the global south. And then that is, yes, that is just rhetoric, but the rhetoric would have an influence on what you what you do, because you cannot purely say, you know, oh, that's, you know, that's what we say, but we don't do like that. That would create some inherent trouble for them as well. So I would say, you know, it's uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, pro-global South, uh, pro-third world policies or views, um, regardless what the the intentions are, I think it's different from some of the policies that we have seen from the United States or like, you know, World Bank, IMF. So that part is, is different. Um, so if, they, if the scholars, activists uh, look at, at that aspect, it, they, you, they can still comfortably argue that, um, you, know, uh, it, it, you know, even within capitalism, let's say, uh, it is still possible to have a relatively more equal relationship among nations or countries, uh, they, they can still make their argument um, uh, because the purpose, I mean, the audience is within the U.S., right? I mean, it's, so it, it just is a different purpose. In, within China, uh, leftists uh, tend to be, you know, more critical of everything that the government does because, yes, I mean, they were, they, they, you need, you know, they need to be criticized and there are so many things, bad things going on. Um, but I, you know, but but uh, um, in terms of China's, let's say, the influence um, on other parts, let's say, if China 
you know, donates some vaccines to other countries. And that should be something that that's, we would consider that's good. But the leftists in China don't, oftentimes don't look at that part. You know, it's because, uh, you know, what we, you know, people are focusing on was how do we deal with the ruling class here? You know, um, but I, I, I do understand, you know, f- uh, uh, foreign activists, they look at China, would say, oh, China did give the vaccines for free to another country. So both are understandable. I think it's just for different purposes. Okay. Um, so, you know, I want to move on to more of the decollectivization part and the economics. Um, so first, I'd like to ask you to address some common claims made by some of the, you know, these people that we're talking about that still uphold contemporary China as socialists. Uh, they say that the reforms after 1978 have lifted somewhere between 800 to 900 million people out of poverty. And right, they say that the CCP will, you know, execute billionaires who may stray away from the party line. And essentially, they're arguing that the CPC is still in control and still have plans to change the economy back towards socialism. <laughs> um, I want to know what your thoughts are on this claim, on these claims. Um, and yeah, let's, let's, what are your thoughts on these claims before we move on? Right. Um, I think that, you know, uh, somehow this, there is a um, political entity, there's a party or the government that's somehow above class interests that, you know, it's, <laughs> uh, uh, can execute a billionaires if needed. I mean, that's, they're definitely describing uh, a, a different place. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not China for sure. I mean, China has been producing billionaires very fast, you know, um, every, every year, um, and, um, and so it's it's a uh, uh, you know uh, you when you when when people look at the Chinese central government, um, there are comments here and there that uh, that they would say you know what what matters is is people or people's health, people's something, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's not capitalism, it's not profit that's dominating everything. Uh, but if you move away from that central government rhetoric, uh, you look at the, the practice by local governments, is ultimately, you know, you're living in some place, in some province, some county, and the local governments are much more, tend to be much more explicit, um, you know, it's always a crime, say, to destroy investment environment. That's the slogan. You know, the investment environment is how comfortable capitalists are in your place. If you dare to make a protest, if you 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 struggle, and uh, that will destroy the envir- environment. And the capitalists will not be happy, and uh, you know the government will not be happy, and you will face some severe penalty um, so, you know uh, even in terms of judiciary system um, it has been proposed in recent years I think it has already been implemented that if the local or local I mean, any capitalist above above a certain level you know wealth above a certain level if they have committed let's say you know a medium level crime um, um, then when the police or any, you know, this, this 
an institution where they make a decision to arrest uh, this this capitalist, that the this the the Supreme Court's you know direction is that you have to be extra careful in making in making arrests because those people are important. If you arrest one, they of course they don't say capitalist is an entrepreneur. If you if you arrest one entrepreneur, how many jobs are you gonna in in danger? Right? I mean, how many people are gonna lose jobs? What's the the whole the many people in this county are counting on this company? And don't you dare just make that arrest. Okay, I mean it's it's just give a, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know some some kind of uh, um, political uh, 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 I don't know safety uh, measure to to the to the capitalist class. You know it's it's so you don't you don't even you're not even facing the same kind of uh, <laughs> legal standards. Um, uh, only if you're making super crimes that you'll be charged. If you're making just small crimes like you know killing someone. Uh, burying someone, you know, just um, raping someone. I guess that would be considered a medium um, crime, uh, and um, which has happened uh, not even once, and it just more than once. I mean, and and so you know what the, the attitudes of the 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 government, the ruling class, it's it's very it's very clear. Um, um, but it is true that. Under the direction of the central government, in some special cases, they can discipline some individual capitalists, which has also happened. Um, but it was not for the purpose of, let's say, um, um, protecting the working class or helping the working. I don't think that was that was the aim. Um, it could be that a certain faction of capitalists. Uh, were not working with this, you know, particular political figure, or um, it could be that the very business they are doing threatens the stability of this economy. Uh, this, I mean, when those things happen, you know, for example, you, the central leadership may be very cautious about financial capital. They say, you know, well, we don't want to go in that direction. We don't want to copy the U.S. model in that. Um, uh, because you know we don't want, we want to avoid crisis. Uh, so if that is their goal, they can and yeah, they do make arrests, or they they do you know they can take away some of the things that they give to the capitalists. That's for sure. But overall, I don't think there is a clear sign that the the government were you know somehow pro pro labor pro worker. I don't think so. Yeah, I want I want just to respond to that. I feel like. You know, for uh, a lot of the Maoists who are listening, we know that uh, it's very common for a Marxist-Leninist perspective to see that there are no contradictions in a quote-unquote socialist nation, right? But, you know, we all know that there's contradictions amongst the capitalists themselves, right? And, and you know, there, there are capitalists that get arrested here in the U.S. occasionally, like very big millionaires and billionaires. It happens here. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it is just a ridiculous claim sometimes. And I just wanted to cover it. Can I ask you to touch on that, that number 800 to 900 million people being lifted out of poverty? I, I assume, I don't really know the details of it all. I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, it's, it's a lot of these peasants who have become industrial proletariats moving to the coastal cities. Um, and also the second thing is they moved from the old 
um, um, wage system from the socialist time to the current wage system that they have now. And of course, the capitalist rotors and Dang himself really looked down on the peasants. So I feel like it was easy for them to be like, oh, they were all in poverty. Now that they're industrializing, they're not in poverty anymore. Is that anywhere near what's happening? I, I think it's it's uh, 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 I think it's it's very accurate. Um, but uh, the very claim that um, China has lifted, let's say, a very large number of people out of poverty, that has come in two phases. Um, when when in the nineteen eighties, uh, um, when the you know when the decollectivization reform was going on, there was a claim that uh, the reform by getting rid of the commune actually, you know, made everyone better off, you know, leave, you know, leave them out of poverty. Uh, but that didn't, um, you know, uh, stand the test of time because uh, very quickly people realized that there's so much poverty in the countryside um, and uh, it's not going to be better. And considering that with the commune gone, uh, peasants lost the health coverage, lost edu- the free education, um, so, uh, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's, at least it's hard to say they were better than before, um, not even not worse. Uh, uh, I think the, the poverty of the countryside, the crisis, the agrarian crisis in China has become, uh, transparent in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, then you start to see a new phase of this, uh, this development, um, uh, when the, the current leadership came into position uh, eight years ago, nine years ago, they, they had the plan that they're going to uh, eradicate poverty uh, by, by last year, by 2020, I think. Um, so that was, was different. I, think, I would say that was different from the previous more laissez-faire approach to poverty, you know, uh, because you... You know, previously, after the decollectivization reform, the dominant ideology is that, you know, just the market economy can solve everything, you know, can solve poverty, can move people out of every, you know, just make everyone better. Uh, but uh, that obviously didn't work very well. Um, and the government, I think, starting from the 2000s, um, had a conscious plan to build a a kind of a Chinese version of welfare state uh, under capitalism. Um, that's, that is when you see a rapid expansion of health coverage. Um, uh, uh, in, I think in the early, because after the commune, uh, the, the peasant, you know, that's 800, 900 million people lost health insurance. They used to have cooperative health insurance under the commune, then they lost it. Um, and for, for, for years, it just, you know, it became a big problem for them. And then uh, the, the central government started to uh, uh, push for this um, new cooperative uh, medical insurance, which, you know, expanded very quickly. This is, you know, this is not propaganda, which did, did happen. And by, I think by 2014, 15, they already covered more than 90% of the national population. So from about 30%, 40% to more than 90%, just in a few years, you do see that, you know, they take some some real determination to do so. Uh, in, and it's also because that, you know, scholars 
argue that the Chinese state um, is still different from a typical capitalist state. You know, they, they if they really think poverty is something they want to get rid of, they 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 do spend resource uh, and they you know, and obviously the way they do it is as you said, you know, basically moving people into capitalism um, or moving people to more prosperous capitalist areas, um, giving them urban employment, uh, moving them out of the countryside. I mean, that's all they are um, thinking. Of course, that would come with other projects like building uh, roads, building all kinds of infrastructure for every village. Um, um, that is also something that they have they have done. Uh, I, I think you know those those projects for progress are were real. Um, so uh, the lifting, you know, the fact that they lifted 70, 80 million people out of poverty, um, um, you know, if we use um, the standard provided by the government itself, I think it's it's, it's mostly true. Uh, but the problem is the standard itself is very, it's not very high. Um, and um, once you move into cities uh, and compared to in the countryside, what matters sometimes is not just your absolute monetary income, uh, because you lost all kinds of other social support. You lost the access to fresh vegetables or food from your garden. Um, then, I, you know, it's not. It doesn't make that much sense to use the same standard to 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 evaluate poverty. Uh, to the you know the someone in the village and someone living in a city, they face different environment. So I think it's you know they transform the rural poverty into urban poverty. I think that's what um, you know that's what they they actually did. I mean again, many of those progress were were real, but it was you know capitalism cannot eradicate poverty. They, they <laughs> I've never seen anything like that in history. I mean neither did China. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that was so clear. Um, I want to move on to this idea of the um, theory of productive forces. Now, you don't outright say that term in your book, but you really do make a a, a really good argument that during socialist construction, they were producing the productive force. They were developing the productive forces, right? But, you know, dang in the capitalist rotors during the reform era, you say the reform era was between 1978 and 1984. And and then after 84, the reforms were done. Um, And, you know, through these reforms, dang in the capitalist rotors said, we got to develop the productive forces. We have to go through certain stages. We have to use market socialism, et cetera, et cetera. but you, you really, I love, I love how you make a solid claim of how, well, like production, especially in the agricultural section, was developing really well. And then uh, during and after the reforms, it, it basically either stagnated or production actually declined in, in a lot of different cases, which is, is like very alarming to some people, right? And so can you talk about this, the idea of developing the, the, the productive forces, um, contrasting it during the, you know, really the cultural revolution and then uh, afterwards? Yes. Um, 
you know, when the political figures, they make a, um, you know, make some kind of a headline, I, what they say, I mean, what that, you know, what they actually say doesn't matter that much. Like when Trump say, make America great again, then you feel like, oh, well, so America was not great. It's not great now. I mean, we need to make it great again. It gave you that impression. I mean, the same is with Deng when he said, we need to focus on productive forces. It seems like, wow, okay, so we were very bad with production production before. I mean, I, but, uh, you know, none of them were true. <laughs> uh, but they but he, they need to make, uh, you know, kind of an entry point. So this is something was wrong with the previous system. And, and you know, uh, and once, you know, you get persuaded, okay, well, that was, that was bad. So how do we do about it? Then they would produce some other solutions. Um, um, and and Don was obviously not really concerned when his allies were not concerned and how efficient, really efficient that the older system was. Um, uh, their purpose from the beginning was to get rid of it. And they, they, they obviously, they make all kinds of claims and all oh, this is not doing great. That is not great, great. Um, and, um, and, you know, one, you know, it's, it's funny that when the Cultural Revolution ended, one of the, under, under the new leadership, one of the things that they say is that um, China has produced so many people. That was a major crime that uh, Mao did. Um, uh, and uh, especially during the Cultural Revolution, they said, you know, just, uh, just within the 10 years, China has overproduced so many people. And that is a major reason why we're so poor. Uh, so, you know, again, I mean, that's, do they have any base for that? Um, obviously not, but they just, they make a point like, okay, we did something really bad. Um, and um, so basically, you know, uh, the production under the, the commune or um, in the Maui or in general, um, uh, they had, um, you know, good times, they, but in some years they were not good. For example, in the, uh, in the first three years of the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, the, the cities were in chaos. Um, and, um, you know, that obviously would have an impact on production. So you see, uh, you know, production was not doing great in those years. But once uh, the first turbulent years have passed, uh, production quickly picked up. Uh, and in the countryside, agricultural production was not really affected by the chaos in the cities. So they kept, you know, a more or less steady uh, progress uh, over, all over the years. Um, the, uh, uh, in some places, um, you know, the, the commune were experimenting with all kinds of things. You know, they were experimenting with their own factories, they were experimenting with new institutions, for example, you know, uh, there's small teams uh, that each team would organize their own production. But when they get advanced enough, they genuinely had the demand that, you know, we're too small. We're not gonna have a bigger place to operate. So that different teams can, can collaborate. They can build into a larger team. Um, and so you, you, there are more advanced areas you do see that trend. And um, so there is definitely uh, a lot of things going on. And um, uh, it was the time when uh, the, uh, the communes were also implementing the new 
varieties, the green revolution seeds and uh, other technologies. Um, so in terms of productive forces, uh, you know, they were genuinely developing productive forces. Um, and uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, when when the, uh, the new leadership uh, try to basically dismantle the old one, the old system, they, um, you know, they would, you know, a politician, they, they like to find some weak spot in the old system, you know, try to make a big headline out of that. And, you know, the, uh, uh, um, and they, the central leadership did find, you know, there's a couple places that were very poor um, uh, for all kinds of reasons. And in those places, if you do some experiments, I say just get rid of the commune and, and give them all kinds of uh, fertilizer, pesticides, you know, for a very cheap price, give them incentive with higher prices. And I think it's very natural that, that you know, you're going to see, you know, in some place you can see an increase in production. Then the politicians, they're going to make this as a, a big case, like, see, this proves that uh, that the old model doesn't work, and by you know by doing this we, we we magically increased, and the reason is because we increased incentive, uh, uh, which is so important, um, and and then you know as long as they make make one case, um, uh, it then is the job of the central leadership like them uh, that you know needs to uh, um, basically you know uh, push this model nationwide. Um, and it, it was a bitter struggle. Um, not every provincial, not every local leader uh, was not was following that line. And um, as I mentioned in the book, you know, these people who didn't follow that line would, would be replaced, uh, demoted, or um, they have to face some consequences. Um, and eventually, you know, this this. Uh, the new model was um, um, implemented nationwide by the, the you know by the the order from the central government. Uh, it was a very fast process. Um, um, you know, it was also a time when the central government uh, tried very hard to increase real incentive of the the, the farmers. You know, they can increase the the purchasing price of, of agricultural products. So you can you know, get more money, much more money than before, 50% more. Then, you know, naturally you're gonna, you know, people will react to that. You know, this is, uh, this, it, it's not rocket science, um, but they also try their best to provide, uh, you know, fertilizers and others to peasants at a discounted price. And that, you know, they all had an impact. Then in 1984, when the rural reform ended, um, the last step was to get rid of the commune. And the commune had their own factories, had their own reserves. Uh, and the reserve have a lot of, you know, food, other agricultural products. And once you get rid of the commune, all the old reserves become, you know, become privatized as well. And that would... Uh, be reflected on the accounting books, so that uh, in 1984 it was a historical record of, of harvest, um, and um, you know the central leadership then basically they, they claim that they, they, this has proved 
the old case and it has closed this whole debate. Um, then, you know, once the, the, the whole decollectivization was done, the central leadership quickly uh, withdrew many of the previous support to the to agriculture. For them, they, they said, okay, well, we have bought too much food from countryside. We can't do anymore. We can't afford. So they remove, you know, uh, some of the subsidies, uh, the price support, uh, or, you know, previously they, they said, you know, doesn't matter how much you can produce, I'm going to buy it all. So, you know, they're guaranteed sale. Then in 1984, they said, ah, after 90 they said, you know, sorry, we can't do this anymore. You have to find your market. You have to sell it. And then that, you know, quickly become a challenge for farmers. Um, and then uh, very naturally, you see a big decline in production starting from 19, uh, after 1984. Um, it was quite a few years of stagnation in, in production um, until it reached, you know, the 1984 level again. Yeah, uh, that's a you know that's yeah that's very clearly said. Um, and 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 going back, I, I loved when you started with the Trump uh, "Make America Great Again" in, in the comparison. You know, I think anybody, especially in the U.S., well, anybody around the world knows that knows that now um, can relate to that and can understand that perspective. One of the things I wanted to touch on, which I think is so incredibly important, is that when the capitalist rotors took power, um, one of the first things that they realized that they had to do was to break the backbone of what was actually socialism in China. And that backbone was the worker-peasant alliance. I think this is so incredibly important. From my understanding, and, and you've written, you touch on a lot of it in the book, is you know, in the industrial sector, it's, you know, change the status of the workers from permanent to temporary, take away some of their benefits, et cetera, uh, take their power away. In the agricultural sector, it is decollectivize the communes. And you really focus on this part in your book, right? And that, you know, through, through the, you know, you explain it in more detail in your book, but that essentially breaks that backbone and, you know, you know, provides a path and opportunity for the capitalist rotors to implement their policies to, you know, create the China that exists today. Yes, yes. Um, um, I think this is this was the case for all the former socialist economies. Uh, th those economic models, when they, you know, after years of development, they had, uh, you know, the agricultural, the agrarian sector, the the farmers, peasants, you know, rural workers, and you have the urban sectors, large, you know, uh, state-owned enterprises. Uh, uh, and they, they, it's it's not easy to 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 reform those. I mean, they, uh, the elites, the Western economists, they have to think very hard. How do we actually uh, get rid of those? Um, because if you just change one part of that. Um, it could become a problem. For example, if you um, remove the, you know, uh, do a, a reform in the industrial sector, then um, the if you, re, you know, the, if the, uh, the agricultural sector remain like before, uh, then it, 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 you you quickly run into the problem like, you know, okay, so you 
you you bought this you got this uh, uh, bought the, purchased the food from the farmers, uh, but how do you gonna sell or how do you use them once you, because you already get rid of the uh, urban sector. Uh, the same is once you just get rid of the rural sector, then you know um, who we're gonna sell our industrial products to. Um, it, it it creates some uh, um, I think challenges um, in 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 this in in Russia in the Soviet Union, for example. If you use that as a, as a comparison, um, you know Gorbachev and the the you know the Chinese leadership, they were. In my mind, they were not so different. I mean, they had very similar ideas, similar plans. Uh, but Gorbachev and his allies, and obviously, you know, there are more uh, extreme versions of the Gorbachev in their government. And uh, they they were they need to basically need to tackle the the Soviet working class, which uh, you know the the in to a certain extent the alliance between the farmers and workers in in Russia. In, in Soviet Union was stronger. Um, you know, uh, after years, decades of very rapid development in Soviet Union, the pay, the payments, uh, the revenue, the, you know, the wages of uh, the, the workers, whether you work in the agriculture or in industry, you receive very similar pay uh, because the, even the rural communes in, 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 in the Soviet Union were also very advanced. Um, uh, in other words, you know, if you, you, you know, you cannot take advantage of uh, one them by divide, by dividing and conquer. That's, that's hard to do so because they are very similar. Um, uh, if you want to really, you know, uh, uh, defeat the working class, uh, be viable, I would say the only viable option for you in Soviet Union is that you have to do it in one stroke. Um, you know, you just one action. Uh, you cannot do it slowly, because once you do it slowly, once you remove, let's say, you have to even the market reform. It doesn't matter how you make the propaganda. In the end, you have to remove the welfare. You have to cut the wages of the workers. You have to destroy the lifetime tenure of those workers. And then once you do that, you know, just imagine the kind of political response the working class would have. It would be again political suicide for Gorbachev and his allies, um, uh, but you know it's so they have to do it just in one action, major like shock therapy. That's the only viable way to do. Um, in China, the you know the Chinese Gorbachevs had a different setup. Um, they do have a very large agrarian sector. In the communes were were running well, uh, but the you know the there is actual big difference between the 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 you know the peasant income and the workers income. Um, so the alliance was definitely there, but it was it was easier for the uh, the capitalist rollers to take you know take take some opportunity. They say, well, you know, um, the peasants, if I give you an opportunity to work in the cities to get the urban wage, would you rather do that? And yes, I mean. That was a that could be a big incentive, um, and once so it, once you you know move the peasants out of the villages and they become the urban proletariat, then it becomes much easier for you to tackle the urban working class. So the 
the very fact of this existence of um, the gap, the rural-urban gap, you know, something socialism was aiming to eliminate, uh, uh, but hasn't quite done so, and not so not yet in in China. That created some extra space for capitalists to 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 manipulate. Um, uh, so in China, the you know the the very the existing social economic structure, you know, was you know gave this space. They they can tolerate a a gradual reform. You can first deal with the the peasants, then eventually deal with the urban working class. While in Soviet Union, they cannot do so. So uh, here, in one place, you have shock therapy. In the other place, you have a gradual reform, which you know they cause. They all cause tremendous damage to the working class, uh, but the gradual reform uh, provided a much smoother, uh, you know, more, uh, um, uh, you know, a, say a more. Uh, uh, it's it's more it's safer, let's say, option for the for the ruling class. Yeah, that's a great explanation. That's a great comparison as well. Clearly said. Thank you for that. Before we close out, I'd love for you to touch on some of the interviews that you conducted when you traveled to China. Now, I know you're not, you know, academically, you're not trained as a as an uh, anthropologist or sociologist or anything, but I still think this is incredibly important to see uh, if you could highlight some of the words of the people that you've interviewed and communicated with in China, just, you know, you know, in, you know, I feel like relatively recently, right in the past five to 10 years at, at the latest, can you talk about your experiences? What are some of their perspectives uh, on China today? So, so that we can have people who listen to the show, you know, kind of get some version, uh, some idea of what's going on. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I learned from the, the villagers uh, was that uh, socialism uh, remained a, you know, um, something very valuable to them. You know, it's the, it's a, the, the, you know, the, the, the bourgeoisie can say whatever they like in the, in the books. Uh, but if you ask the villagers, um, they can tell you all kinds of benefits, all the good stuff about commune, about, about socialism. Um, and then when, when you ask them, um, then can we do it? You know, can we, can, you know, just do this collectively, you know, then uh, this is uh, from the, from the farmers, also from the local party secretary, he's a very good person. Uh, he said, we don't have the leadership. Uh, you know, you really need a political leadership to, to unite people, to do those, all those things together to build socialism. Socialism is mo- much more than just cooper- cooperatives, you know, just doing business together. You need that, uh, you, you need, you know, it, you need a party. You need a political, uh, that consciousness. I mean, all of those uh, that he said we are missing, you know, we, we cannot do that, even we want to. Um, so there is a desire, I think, among the ordinary working people that, you know, if there is a, political force that guides them to build socialism, they would be willing to do so. Um, the other thing that I, I learned was that, um, you know, obviously when you build um, um, socialist uh, stuff, um, 
you know, you still face all kinds of contradictions or face um, problems. Um, how, you know, how do you, how do you build your leadership? Uh, how do, you know, hundreds of people listen to you? Or, you know, how do you uh, uh, really build this socialist environment? I mean, obviously, you know, it's having democracy, having all kinds of open discussion that is all very important. But as the leadership, you know, we say the vanguard or the, the party uh, country, and what matters, as some of the older uh, party members told me, is that you have to do um, two things. You know, uh, first, uh, whatever work that the collective, the commune needs to do, you're going to do it first. Um, and, and second, you know, uh, do, never be selfish. You know, you're willing to make sacrifices. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, uh, it's the lessons, experiences that have worked well for a, um, you know, for a poorer nation uh, where, you know, building socialism is much more than just thinking about ideas, thinking about, you know, design models, uh, uh, doing, you know, calculations. It also means you really need to uh, work among the people, meet the people, and do all those hard manual labor. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's probably could be different, let's say, in the United States. Uh, it, I don't know. Uh, but in, in China, that means that the, 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 being a communist, uh, it means you're willing to make sacrifices, and that's how you gain the, the trust of the people. So that's something I learned. That's incredibly, I mean, it, it really, this makes me think of, uh, you know, this, the, the importance of international working class solidarity. And, you know, um, you know, if you, I'm sure you'll go back to the villages at some time, some point, I hope you can let them know that there are people here. There are revolutionaries here uh, that have been incredibly inspired by the Chinese experience in that history and that we do stand with the Chinese people and the working class against all billionaires, against all, all capitalists, against all exploiters, against all oppressors. Um, so, yeah, you know, Jun Shu, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, Jun Shu is the author of From Commune to Capitalists, How China's Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty. Be sure to purchase a book this book from monthly review press i'll leave the link in the show notes below um and thank you for your time i really you know i really appreciated reading your book i really appreciated this interview and i really hope you can come back thank you so much yeah this is the funk in the basement arrangement funky eight mass to a strange and deranged shit i'm cooking satan and jasmine rice comrades propaganda looking extra nice pulling overtime double shifts extra nights that's the rest when the press get your mental right that's my work to do everybody tired as hell i open and some dead signs could tell how we provide for each other well climbing the hill for the velvetas i met with honors on your skills that you own in the struggle practice a rebuttal at home so when you win the field you strong strong man 
arguments get abolished quick I'm reading out, goddamn, yo, we fine as shit Comrades reading shit by the PCP While the words make a strip like it's LSD Then we go and smoke shisha and get in for free We ain't here for the club but the company And that's word to the watermelon man Get the fuck out the space if you're only here for the skins Too much fuck shit stay happening Don't wanna battle comrades but bomb the headquarters on your punk ass Sometimes the shit is necessary Much like revisionism that shit getting buried Charlotte is the place that made me who I am That's why I'm so damn crazy Now on the real, that's how I feel Since the 030, you can see A before I elope Now I'm grown with a grown with the do What good is politics if I can show it to you? What good's an A-man if he ain't making the beats To make you wanna grab an AK and take it to the streets? Fuck police, I'll defend those I love myself Fuck property, I don't wanna work just to sell I'll grab a mic and I'll teach you how to use it To make sure the words ain't only for amusement I wish power could be balanced just by music But that would be to give in to embarrassing illusions Sad saxophone playing for your exit Rise up like off-world nexus This awful rope around my neck is Gonna make me strong when I take it off to practice Swinging it at those that try to take my breakfast Saying I should be happy with crumbs While the biscuits are flexing I want the hags and the ash browns plus the truth I don't want that shit If my neighbor can't have it too that, Okay, that line didn't work Yeah, 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 cut the beat Let me rewrite that shit real quick